0: Uh, We're going to be in Revelation today, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. We're also going to look at Matthew um, 24. So if you've been with us in this series so far, hopefully you know by now that when we talk about heaven, we're not talking about an ethereal place far beyond the blue where we drift around like angels with wings and halos or sit on clouds and strum harps. What we're talking about is the return of Jesus. We're talking about the renewal of this earth. Now, do we go to be with Jesus the day we die, the moment we're away from our bodies? Are we present with the Lord in heaven? Absolutely. Is that place someplace Jesus called paradise? Yes. Is that better than here? You bet. But is that our ultimate hope? No, our ultimate hope is the resurrection of the dead, the return of Christ, us walking in actual physical bodies in a renewed earth. Hopefully you've gotten that so far. But I know for some of you, uh, for, for a lot of Christians, whenever we talk about this, there's people who go, well, where? how do all those end times things that I've learned growing up in church, how, where, how does that all figure into it? Like a lot of people wonder, well, where's the rapture in all of this? How come you don't talk about the rapture? Um, so we're going to talk about to- that today. What do we know? about the end. What do we know about those days leading up to Christ's return? How will we know it's happening? What do we need to be doing in the meantime? So let me just start by telling you kind of a silly story. This is not a true story, at least I hope not. So pastor was visiting one of his church members who was critically ill, looked like he was headed toward death. And the pastor was going to pray in hopes that God would grant healing, would grant a miracle. And he's standing really close. The guys, you know, he can't speak. He's got a a tube down his throat and the pastor's standing over him and and trying to speak words of comfort, words of assurance. And, And suddenly the man's eyes get large. And he gets this look of urgency on his face and he starts reaching and and the pastor realizes he wants to say something and so he gives him a sheet of paper and a pen and the man quickly scratches out a note and hands it to the pastor and then dies. And just like that, and the pastor, in all the confusion, he puts the note in his pocket, he forgets all about it. So a couple of days later, He's doing the funeral of this dear brother and he's up there in front of everyone and he's preaching and he's eulogizing and he remembers all of a sudden, oh yeah, he gave me that note. And he happens to be wearing the very same coat, the very same jacket that uh, he was wearing when that happened and he realizes that note is right here in my vest pocket. And he pulls it out very dramatically right in the middle of his sermon. He goes, you know, my brother here, he had something on his mind at the, at the moment of his death and he wrote it for me and I haven't read it until now so I want to read it for you right now. I want to read for you what was going through our brother's mind at the moment he died. And he opens the, the note and he reads the words, help, you're standing on my oxygen hose. And I'm really glad you laughed. But... I tell you that story because we as preachers are good at stepping in it. We're good at putting our foot's in our feet, our foot's, <laughs> our feet in our mouths. We're good at saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. Sad to say, plenty of preachers, I'm sure myself on occasion have brought disrepute to the name of Christ, and never more than when it comes to the subject we're talking about today. And I said last year when we talked about revelation, I said I think your trust in a preacher should go down the more certain he seems to be in his particular view of the end times. Doesn't say, doesn't mean we shouldn't preach on it. Doesn't mean we shouldn't study it. We should. But if you meet a preacher who says, oh, I got it all figured out. It's in my book. Why don't you buy my book? Then you'll know how it's going to happen. I'm just telling you, walk away. Because these things are not things that you... Uh, that, there's very little about what people say about the end times that are... Clear in Scripture. A lot of what we do is piecing Scriptures together and creating a sort of scenario that sounds good and then adding details based on our own imaginations, our own understanding of current events. And oftentimes we lead our, our congregations astray. We, we give people reason for hysteria. And at the, on the other hand, when our predictions don't pan out, we give people reason to, to distrust the Word of God when there shouldn't be any reason to do that. And to be fair, it's not just us within the church. Some of y'all remember in 2012 when everyone was all stirred up because they, they talked about how the Mayan, the Mayan tribe in South America, how they had this calendar that went until 2012. And in 2012, the Mayan calendar ended. So everybody said, did the Mayans know things that we don't know? And, and did they know that the world was going to end in 2012? And even back then, I was saying, I think it's just the Mayans ran out of paper Right In 2012, they're like, oh, darn, I can't write any more dates. And so, as you know, the Lord didn't come back in 2012. The world didn't end in 2012. What I want to do today is I want to talk about what we know, what we can believe for certain, what we can bank on, Not what we think, not what we've heard, not what we were raised to believe, not what brother so-and-so says, not what they showed in that movie with that guy who was in that sitcom in the 80s, but what we know for certain about the end. And it all starts, believe it or not, in the Old Testament. A lot of Christians, a lot of people mistakenly believe that it's all in Revelation. No, it starts way back in the Old Testament. It starts uh, especially especially in prophets like Amos and Hosea, uh, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, these, these prophets would talk about a day they called the Day of the Lord. Now when you read it, and you really read between the lines, and you read it in the context, you understand, they're not talking about a 24-hour period when they say the Day of the Lord. They're saying an era, a period, a, 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 an era in history when the Lord is going to show up. And is going to make things right. When God shows up, everybody gets their act together and things go the way they should. And so they talked in the Old Testament over and over again about here, here comes the great and terrible day of the Lord when things will be set right. And one of the things they kept talking about, especially, especially in Daniel, Isaiah, and Ezekiel is, there's going to be this man, this Messiah, this anointed one. Daniel called him the son of man. He says there's a son of man. He looks like a man, but he, he approaches the throne of the ancient of days and he takes the scroll from the hand of the Almighty and he pours out, he, he wreaks God's vengeance, God's judgment on the earth. He, he makes things right. And so for hundreds of years, especially for those 700 years before the birth of Jesus, There was intense expectation. When is this man going to come? When is our anointed one going to arrive? And those last 400 years before Jesus, there was no prophecy at all. There was a famine for hearing the words of the Lord, just like it says in Amos. There were no prophets who sprung up. And then along comes John the Baptist, and he's talking about it. And then along comes Jesus. And Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. And boy, people's ears perked up. They said, "This guy, here's this guy walking around calling himself the son of man. Does he mean he's the guy talked about in the book of Daniel? And he wasn't anything like they thought the Messiah was going to be. So the message from Jesus was, yes, I am him, but I'm not the Messiah you thought I was going to be. In fact, a lot of those prophecies, a lot of those promises aren't going to be fulfilled until I come back the second time. I'm the Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah you thought I was. I'm here to do God's will, not fulfill your expectations. And then we get to Revelation. And Revelation, if you haven't really studied Revelation, or if you've just heard some sermons on it, or maybe just read a comic book or two, or seen uh, you know, the, the Left Behind series or something like that, I'm not downgrading any of that stuff, but the book of Revelation is not what a lot of people think book of Revelation was not given by God so that Brother Big Hair on TBN could sell a bunch of books, okay? It wasn't given so that we could figure things out and so that we would know all the answers. Revelation was written around 100 A.D., the Apostle John was the last of the original 12 followers of Jesus who was still alive. He was exiled on a little island off the coast of Greece called Patmos. He's an old man by now. Uh, his whole generation is dead. Right now, the Roman Empire is one of the, during one of those periods in which they've decided the church is no good and they want to try to stamp out Christianity. This would kind of come and go through the first 300 years of the church. Well, this is a bad time when church is being persecuted and John is there on the island of Patmos because of his faith, and God gives him this vision. And it's a Sunday. He should be preaching in his church in Ephesus, but he can't because he's been arrested. So God gives him this vision. And this vision is of the throne room of heaven. God see, or John sees things that no human being has ever seen before. And he writes it all down and it's this book, it's this letter that's written to the churches at those times and every church ever since to say, when you get down, when you get discouraged, when it looks like here's big old bad Rome and little bitty church and there's no way we'll ever win. We follow this carpenter. They follow Caesar. Um, We believe in loving your enemies. They believe in crushing your enemies. There's no way we're ever going to win. When you feel like we're just done Read this vision and remember, there's more going on than what you can see. There's a whole other world that your eyes can't see where good and evil is being fought, and guess what? Good wins. And we're telling you where this is headed. God is giving us a vision of where this is all headed And righteousness wins, and justice wins, and grace wins in the end. And Christ is king, and that's the whole message of the Book of Revelation. It's a book of encouragement, and it it climaxes in chapter nineteen because in chapter nineteen, all of a sudden you see Jesus, who's been depicted earlier as a lamb, now he's depicted as a warrior. And he climbs on top of a horse, a white horse, and he rides down from heaven, followed by the armies of heaven, and all the forces of evil are masked in a place called Armageddon, and Jesus just wipes them out, just with the sword proceeding from his mouth, which I take to mean he just speaks a word and they're all gone. So it's not even a fair fight. And then the new earth begins, and that's where the disagreement starts. Because every Christian who reads Revelation agrees that, yes, Jesus is coming back someday, and it's going to be great, but the question is how? So what I want to do is I want to read chapter 20, because right after chapter 19, with that final battle, here's what happens, and then we're going to talk about three different ways to look at this chapter, and then we're going to look at Matthew, 40, uh, Matthew 24, and then we're going to say, here are the four things we know for sure. Okay, So there's your pregame, here we go. Revelation 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the Word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So let me just give you the three different ways of looking at that chapter. All right. So the one I grew up with, the one, if you're my age or older and you grew up in an evangelical background, so Baptist, uh, Pentecostal, non-denominational, Church of Christ, you probably heard this. In fact, many of you who've heard this probably think this is the only way to look at the end times. Here's how it goes. So according to this scheme, someday, at an unexpected time, all of the Christians are just going to vanish, and it's called the rapture. Suddenly, every believer in Jesus is just going to be gone without a trace. And so you'll have driverless cars, you'll have planes dropping out of the sky because their pilots have been raptured up to heaven, and all the unbelievers are going to walk around going, what just happened? Where have all these people gone? And that's going to be followed by a period, it's either seven years or it's an undetermined period, depending on which author you read, that's called the Great Tribulation, when things on this earth get worse and worse, when there's more disease, more pain, more violence, more death, more natural disasters. In the meantime, a great world leader will rise up in the midst of this promising peace, promising, I'm going to unify everybody, I'm going to take care of this world, I'm going to make things right. We call him the Antichrist. Peoples of the world will flock to him, will look to him as their answer, except for the people who come to Christ during this time, during the Great Tribulation, who choose not to follow the Antichrist, and they are persecuted, and they're tormented, and some of them martyred. At the end of this time, Jesus returns. The Battle of Armageddon ensues. Jesus, of course, wins. Judgment Day happens, and here's the millennium. Actually, I got that wrong. After the Battle of Armageddon, then here's this period we talk about in, in, Genesis, in Revelation 20 this 1,000 years. And people in this camp take these words in Revelation 20 absolutely literally. There will literally be a 1,000 years in which Jesus will reign as king over this world and along with him will be the, the resurrected martyrs and then everyone else who was still alive when Jesus returned. And he'll reign over that world for a 1,000 years. And at the end of that 1,000 years, everyone, all the rest of us will rise and there will be judgment day followed by the new earth that we've been talking about all along. Now, we call this view premillennialism. Premillennialism because it's about the millennium and the rapture and all that stuff takes place before the millennium, okay? Y'all with me? And some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Just humor me. This is important stuff, okay? Some of you are like, wait, I wanna, I, this is my thing. I want you to talk about this all day long. I'm sorry. We got to move on. I'll come back to you. But listen, there's two other views. There's amillennialism. The word a in Latin means either not or no, and so these people believe there's not a physical, literal millennium. They would say that these verses, these six verses in Revelation 20, are like most of the rest of Revelation. They're symbolic. When you read numbers in Revelation, they're usually not meant to be taken literally. For instance, In another chapter in Revelation, it talks about 144,000 children of God who are redeemed. That doesn't mean nobody thinks, well, only other than the Jehovah's Witnesses, nobody thinks that means there's only 144,000 people who are going to be saved. I think even the Jehovah's Witnesses have changed their minds about that. So in the same sense, they would say this 1,000 years is just symbolic, and it's symbolic of the present age we're living in now, when Satan is bound in the sense that we as Christians, we as God's church, are not under the power of the devil anymore. Really, the devil has no power over any believer except the power we give him. So we as the church, we can preach, we can pray, we can prophesy, we can lead people to Christ, and the devil can't do one thing about it. And so that's what this chapter is about according to amillennialists. Then there's post-millennialists. That's the third camp. So post-millennialists, as the name implies, believe that the real action happens after the millennium. So what they would say is, these six verses, this thousand years it's talking about, is a future golden age in which wars will end, diseases will be wiped out, poverty will be vanquished, there will be equality, there will be peace, There will be good treatment. Why? Because the church does its job. Because the church goes out and does missionary work and leads people to Christ. And because the church, um, because they love Jesus and because through Jesus they love people, they're working and they're using their gifts to wipe out diseases and to address poverty and to bring about peace. And so because of the advance of God's kingdom, it's going to bring this golden age on the earth. And at the end of that golden age, Jesus is going to come back to this world that we have prepared for Him by His grace and reign over it. That's post-millennialism. So those are the three camps, and I need to go back to that first one, the premillennialist. Why? Because that's the one a lot of us grew up with, and that's the one a lot of us still hold. And I need to say this. I need to say this very carefully. I don't want to make anybody mad. I'm not trying to pick a fight, because frankly, if if we're honest, there's not going to be a quiz on Judgment Day. Which camp were you in? Oh, you were one of those? Well, then you don't get in. That's not the way it works. So this is not life or death stuff but I do need to address this, all right? So three things about premillennialism. Three things about the rapture, okay? Three things I want you to note. Number one, this idea of a premillennial rapture, at least the way I just described it, has actually only been around for the last 200 years. So church has been around 2,000 years. It's only been the last 200 years that this idea has gotten going. And really, it's only been the last century last hundred years, that it's become the dominant view among believers. And the main reason it was is because there was this Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible that became very popular about 100 years ago, and the notes, the reference notes in it, were from a premillennial bent. Okay, So just keep that in mind. If you would have talked to our Baptist forefathers 120 years ago, most of them would have been post honestly. Second thing, when you talk about the rapture, is that in the Bible? Well, it depends on who you ask. There's a few passages here and there in Scripture which you can interpret to mean there's going to be a rapture like I described. But Christians of good faith, people who who have the same high regard for the integrity of God's Word and the authority of God's Word, interpret that verse differently. So when you have a doctrine where Christians who equally respect God's Word disagree, what I say is that's clearly not a doctrine that is... Life or death, an essential of the faith. So we, we can agree to disagree on that. All right, You can believe in a rapture and I don't. We can still be believers in the same church because it's not an essential doctrine. Third thing, even if you do believe in a premillennial rapture, you've got to agree with me on this, and I will argue with you on this one. It is clear from Scripture that was not the hope of the first century church. Peter, Paul, none of the apostles, none of the church in the first century was walking around saying, boy, I sure can't wait for Jesus to get me out of this place. I can't wait until that day when I just, all of a sudden, I'm translated up to his presence. No, instead they were saying, I can't wait for him to come back. I can't wait for my body to be resurrected. I can't wait for this world to be renewed. See, the problem and the reason I'm, I'm hammering on this, I grew up with this teaching. I grew up with, I mean, my Sunday school teacher, when I was 10 or 11 years old, gave me a copy of the late great planet earth, scared the snot out of me. Good man. I love him. Great. I mean, had a great impact on my, on my life, but I was taught this doctrine problem with this doctrine. I'm not saying if you believe in in a premillennial rapture, you're like this, but the problem with this doctrine, it, it can lead to the idea that, well, what, what does this world matter anyway? Why should I care about poverty? Why should I care about disease? Why should I I care about people down the street? Why should I care about the problems in this world when I'm getting out of here someday anyway? Again, you can believe in a rapture and not be like that, but it tends to lead to that kind of mindset. It it tends to lead to an evacuation mindset. And we become like the people on the Titanic who are like, hey, since I'm in first class, I I know there's a lifeboat for me. And here's the thing. In the Scriptures, the end times are not about evacuation. They're about redemption. The hope of Scripture is never about evacuating this world. It's about redeeming this world. The victory at the end is not, boy, thank God we got out of that place. The victory at the end is, look what God did. The devil didn't win. Sin didn't win. It looked like they'd ruined this world and God came back and redeemed the whole thing. Look how He did this. That's the glory of God. It's not about evacuation. It's about redemption. So coming back to those three schools, who do I agree with? I got to tell you, I'm not really on any of those three sides. I used to say, I used to say that I was a pan-millennialist because it's all going to pan out in the end, and I still kind of feel that way, but that, that's just too flippant for such an important subject. So here's what I say. I think in the end, nobody's going to be able to say, aha, I was right. I got it. I nailed that one. Not one single person. In fact, I am convinced that nobody has it right. Not 100% right. Because here's why. When you, when you look at, at Jesus' first coming, Jesus is born in a manger in Bethlehem. Nobody predicted that. Sure, Micah did, but nobody understood what it was going to be. Think about this for just a moment. Just, just wrap your mind around this. The first time Jesus came, there had been hundreds and hundreds of years of people who all they did was study those prophecies. And they were even more excited about His coming than anybody in this room is about His second coming. They were anticipating it. They were desperate for it. They were longing for it. And then Jesus comes and not a single person says, "Uh Aha, it's exactly as I believed." They didn't know how He would be born. They didn't know what kind of life He would live. They didn't know that He was going to die on a cross. They didn't know He was going to rise again three days later. It was all a surprise to them. Even the very most devout person among them And it was only after he was ascended into heaven that the disciples looked back and were like, okay, now we have the Holy Spirit. Now we understand. And they looked back at the word they'd been reading all their lives and said, okay, now it makes sense. Now I understand. Now it all adds up. And I think that's exactly the way it is going to be the second time. I don't think there's a single chance in God's earth that there's a single person in this world, not you, not me, not Brother Big Hair on Trinity Broadcasting Network. Nobody is going to be able to say, I got it. I was right. In fact, here's my prediction. When it happens, everybody's going to be surprised. When it happens, to quote from old Ross Perot from about 20 years ago, the giant sucking sound you hear is going to be thousands and thousands of self-proclaimed prophecy experts, their egos just blowing away like a leaky balloon, and the rest of us sitting back and saying, praise God, look what he did oh my goodness, I never realized it was going to be so perfect. His plan just worked out better than I ever could have imagined. Better than any book, better than any sermon could predict. We're going to be like the disciples looking back at Revelation and the rest of God's Word and going, okay, so that's what that meant. I always wondered about that. Now I understand. Don't you know that's going to be wonderful? So, let's move on to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is what we know as the the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is speaking from the Mount of Olives, two miles from Jerusalem. This is the week of His death. In a few days, He'll be arrested. Um, This is His longest teaching about the end times anywhere in the Bible, straight from the mouth of Jesus. Matthew 24, starting with verse 4. He says, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in My name claiming, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Let me ask you something real quick. Do you hear about nations rising against nations ever when you're watching the news? Do you ever hear about natural disasters, poverty, disease, famine? Do you ever hear about people proclaiming themselves to be a Messiah of some kind? Yes, all those things happen. What did Jesus say about those things? He said, don't be alarmed. Isn't it ironic that we do the exact opposite of what Jesus said? We hear those things and we flip out. And we're like, it's happening. And Jesus said, no, 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 don't, don't be alarmed. Don't, don't buy Brother So-and-So's book. Don't run off to the hills and sell all your property and, and you know, sit there in a lotus position waiting for me to return. No, no. these are just the beginnings of birth pains. I mean, even a first time mom doesn't run to the hospital the first time she feels a little twitch inside of her belly, she knows that's just a reminder that there's something in there that's coming out. And in the same way, when we hear of these things, it's a reminder, this world is not forever. This world is not going to last. God is birthing something better, something more lasting, something more beautiful is coming from all this pain. He goes on. Let's skip to verse 36. I wish I had time to do the whole chapter. Someday we will. Verse 36, he says, "...no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father." And you know, whenever I hear preachers who are absolutely rock solid certain about their particular interpretation of the end times, I'm always like, buddy, you better be glad that God, a gracious God is your judge and not me, because if I was your judge, then you would spend all of eternity with Matthew 24, 36 tattooed across your forehead, because you just didn't listen. And and we just want to remind you, but God's not going to be that way. He goes on in verse 42. He says, therefore, keep watch And then Jesus jumps right from there into four straight parables. And in the first one, he tells the story of a master who goes away and leaves one of his servants in charge of his property. And the servant says to himself, man, the master's going to be gone a long time. I don't have to worry about anything. And he gets drunk and he begins to beat his fellow servants and he, he stops doing his work. And the master comes back sooner than the servant thinks. And it's not a good annual review for that servant. Let's just say that. Second parable, he talks about a wedding. Weddings were very very different in the first century. In this this parable, there are these ten bridesmaids. Their whole job is when the bridegroom shows up, we are to escort him to the bridal chamber to meet and to to conceive with his uh, bride. And so these ten bridesmaids are waiting for the groom to show up. It's getting later and later. They fall asleep. Around midnight, the groom shows up. They wake up in a start. Oh my goodness, the groom is here. Let's light our lamps because it's midnight. Five of the bridesmaids take their lamps and they light them and they start to lead the bridegroom away. But five of the bridesmaids forgot to buy oil so they can't and so they get shut out of the wedding feast. In the third parable, it's the parable of the talents. Some of you know this one. A rich man is leaving for a while, so he leaves all of his money with his three servants. And he says... Increase my money while I'm gone. And two of the three servants take that money and they invest it wisely and they double their investment. And when the master comes back, he looks at those two and he says, way to go. You did a great job. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the benevolence of your master. But the third servant says, well, I was afraid because I was afraid I might lose it. I might mess it up. And I know you're you're a hard boss to work for. So I just hid it in the ground. I buried it in a hole in the ground so it wouldn't get stolen, wouldn't get lost. And I wouldn't screw anything up. And so the master says, well, you wicked, lazy slave, you wasted an opportunity, cast him out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the last parable he tells in this Olivet Discourse, in, in the, num- the fourth one is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And you know this one. It talks about when the Son of Man returns, He's going to separate all of humanity into two camps, the sheep and the goats. And He'll say to the sheep, Enter into heaven with Me, because when I was hungry, You fed Me. When I was thirsty, You gave Me drink. When I was naked, You clothed Me. When I was sick or when I was in prison, You came to see Me. And they'll all say, Well, Lord, we we don't remember doing any of those things. And He says, But whatever You did for the least of My children, You did for Me. So at the end of all of that, at the end of all that that Jesus says, at the end of everything we've talked about in Revelation, what do we know about the end? Here's the four things we know. All right. And by the way, these are the things we should be talking about. These are the things we should be discussing. Not that it's wrong to study the three camps I talked about. Not that it's wrong to belong to one of those. Not that it's wrong to debate and discuss. That's fine. But these are the things we should major on because these are the things we know. Number one, we know Jesus is coming back. That is unequivocal in the Word of God. Nowhere does it say anything other than the fact that the Messiah is coming back a second time. Secondly, His second coming will be very different from His first. First time Jesus came, almost no one knew it. Second time He comes, Jesus says, everybody's going to know it. You're not going to have to wonder, hey, what's going on? You'll know. First time He came, He came in humility and meekness. He came as a tiny, helpless Baby born to a poor, obscure couple in a backward part of the world. The second time, he's coming as a conqueror on a white horse. He's coming to conquer and to triumph. The first time, he came to lay down his life for our sins. The second time, he's coming back To judge the wicked, to judge everybody who's ever lived, to wipe out evil and make this world right. So, the first time he came as the lamb, the second time he comes back as the lion of Judah, it's completely different. Third thing we know for sure it will happen at a time we do not expect and cannot predict. Everywhere. I mean, Jesus compares himself to a thief in the night. No thief calls you up and says, Hey, let me make an appointment with you. I want to rob you at 7 o'clock on Thursday evening. Can you be out then? It just doesn't work that way. Jesus, nobody's going to be warned, nobody's going to know He's going to come at a time in a way that we do not expect and cannot predict. And fourth, our responsibility, our entire responsibility is to be ready. That's it. It's not to know all the answers. It's not to, uh, to tell everybody here's how it's going down. Our responsibility is to be ready. Now, when I was growing up, I would hear sermons on the end times, and they'd talk about, you better be ready. And being ready meant this. It meant, you better make sure that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life when He shows up because you don't want to get shut out. You don't want to miss out on the wedding feast. And folks, that is absolutely true. The preachers who said that when I was a kid were right. They were following God's Word, and they were doing the right thing in warning us. When it's, once it's too late, it's too late, so you better be ready. And if you don't know, if you don't know that when Christ returned, if Christ came back today, if you don't know, yeah, I know that I'm His. Not because of anything I've done, but because of what He did. If you don't know that, then today get that right. Come talk to me, talk to Alan during that last hymn when you have an invitation to come and talk to us. That's all true. But i got to tell you, when I read the Scriptures When I read those parables I just quoted for you or or cited for you in Matthew 24 and 25, when I read other teachings in the Bible, it seems to me that when God talks about being ready, He means more than just make sure you're saved. He means make sure you've done what I told you to do. Make sure when I get back, you're busy doing what I left you to do because I've left you with work to do. I've left you with an investment to work on. I've left you with responsibilities. I don't want to come back and find that you're playing around. I want you doing what you should be doing. That's what it means to be ready. So what did God leave you to do? You know, this whole year... Here at First Baptist, we've been focusing on you have a purpose. God created you for a reason. You should be doing God's purpose. Whether you're you're 89 or 9, you've got a reason to exist. You should be doing whatever God put you here to do. And I don't know exactly what your purpose is, but here's what I do know. It has to do with the people God has brought into your life. Because Jesus didn't die on the cross for your bank account or your house or your car, or your job, or your, or, or, or your reputation in the community, or your physical appearance. We put all kinds of emphasis on all those things, but here's what Jesus died for. He died for your parents, for your next-door neighbor, for your algebra teacher. <laughs> yes, even for your algebra teacher. He died for your boss. He died for the lady who cuts your hair, for for the guy who serves you at Starbucks. He died for everybody He brought into your life. So that's, I believe, the work He left us to accomplish. I believe someday I'm going to stand before Jesus and my soul's saved because He's a faithful Savior and He's not going to forget that He died for my sins. But I'm going to have to give an accounting for what did I do with my wife and my two kids? What did I do with the people you brought into my life? those I knew well and those I didn't know well, those who I took the time to invest in and those who I just kind of blew off. What did I do with those opportunities? And I want to be able to say to Him, Lord, I did my best. I gave my all. I didn't bring all of them with me here, but I did everything that I could. Right now, i got to be honest with you, if Jesus came back right now, I'm pretty sure I couldn't say that. There's more I could be doing. How about you? How about you? Do you want to be that servant who stands before the Lord and he says, Well done, you were good, you were faithful, you weren't perfect. If you were perfect, I wouldn't have had to die for you. But man, once you knew I was your Savior, you gave your all to loving people in my name. Wouldn't that be a great day to stand in front of your Savior and to hear him say those words? That can be your future. We've all got a wonderful future ahead. We all do, by the grace of God. But don't you want to stand before him and know I had this brief little window of opportunity to help hurting people, to tell people who don't know Christ who he was, to show them his love in a way they've never seen before. And I didn't waste it.